The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Just to lay out for you where we're headed over the coming weeks, uh, we'll do Ecclesiastes through um, August, and I think the first week in September, and then we're going to start the Acts of the Apostles, so the book of Acts. If you want to do a little reading ahead, we'll spend about a year and a half in the book of Acts as we journey uh, chapter by chapter through that particular book of the Bible. We pray in a minute. Uh, there are numerous things in the bulletin you can see to pray for. Uh, baptism, we've had multiple questions about that. If you've not been baptized since you've come to know Christ as Savior, uh, we strongly encourage you to consider that. There were two meetings that were mandatory. If you didn't make those meetings, uh, please contact a staff person, uh, ASAP, to participate. Um, one of the things we want to do this morning also is pray for the persecuted church. If you are reading the headlines around the world, you recognize that uh, many in our world are suffering because they name the name of Jesus. Uh, there's a blog that's gone on today about uh, what's happened to the missionaries serving in Liberia who contracted Ebola and uh, the results of that. Uh, you're aware of what's happening in Iraq, Nigeria, other places around the world. So we want to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Uh, Ukraine, obviously, is near and dear to our heart. We have a team of folks there right now, and uh, things are uh, where we are are settled down, but there's still many things happening. So I'll pray in a moment, and as I do so, then we will look at that together. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning with verse 2, 9, 2 through 12. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, the unclean, to him that sacrificed, to him that sacrifices not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he feareth an oath. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. There's one event that we all experience. We die. Father, as we look at this word, as we study it, teach us what happens in our lives when it all goes back in the box. When life comes to an end, we pick up the pieces. We pray that you will teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Now, my grandmother was a wonderful person. She taught me how to play the game Monopoly. She understood that the name of the game is to acquire. She would accumulate everything she could, and eventually she became the master of the board. And eventually, every time, she would take my last dollar, and I would quit in utter defeat. And then she would always say the same thing to me. She'd look at me and she'd say, One day, you'll learn to play the game. One summer, I played Monopoly with a neighbor almost every day, all day long. We'd play Monopoly for hours. And that summer, I learned to play the game. I came to understand the only way to win is to make a total commitment to acquisition. I came to understand that money and possessions, that's the way that you keep score. And by the end of that summer, I was more ruthless than my grandmother. I was ready to bend the rules if I had to to win that game. And I sat down with her to play that fall. I took everything she had. I destroyed her financially and psychologically. I watched her give her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. And then she had one more thing to teach me. Then she said, 
Now it all goes back in the box. All those houses and hotels, all the railroads and utility companies, all that property and all that wonderful money, now it all goes back in the box. I didn't want it to go back in the box. (laughs) No, she said. None of it was really yours. You got all heated up about it for a while. But it was around a long time before you sat down at the board. And it will be here after you're gone. Players come and players go. But it all goes back in the box. Houses and cars. Titles and clothes. Filled barns, bulging portfolios, even your body. Because the fact is that everything I clutch and consume and hoard is going to go back in the box and I'm going to lose it all. That's not much of an ROI on that. You have to ask yourself, when you finally get the ultimate promotion, when you've made the ultimate purchase, when you buy the ultimate home, when you have stored up financial security and climbed the ladder of success to the highest rung you can possibly climb it, and the thrill wears off, and it will wear off, then what? How far do you have to walk down that road before you see where it leads? Surely you understand, it'll never be enough. So you have to ask yourself the question, what matters? John Ortberg is the uh, speaker there. John Ortberg wrote a book called When It All Goes Back in the Box. It's a video series that uh, you can get to go with the book. And as we look at that one little segment it asks the question, so when it all goes back in the box, great illustration, isn't it? What really matters? When you look back at your life and everything is put back in, what really matters? When you look in the rearview mirror, what are you living for? And what are the priorities of the day and the priorities of your life? And where do you invest your time? Where do you invest your money? Where do you, what do you do with your talents? When it all goes back in the box, and one day it will, what will really have mattered? Everything in life is temporary except the word of God and the souls of men. So in light of our temporary existence on earth and our inevitable death, when it all goes back in the box, what really matters? That's the question before us this morning. I mean, when it all ends up back in the box, what really matters? Well, death is inevitable, and we have to live like it. In chapter 9, verses 2 through 6, Solomon says, you're going to die. So there's another exciting Sunday morning at Temple Bible Church. <laughs> me and Gary, this series is killing me. I had a friend call me and say, I think I'll be back in September. <laughs> I, I mean, Solomon said, you're going to die. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, clean or unclean, pure or impure, evil or good, you're going to die. Every single one of us will meet the same fate. You're going to die. And so Solomon says there's an unavoidable reality that faces all men. There's an unavoidable reality that faces all men. This unavoidable reality is death. From the day we are born, we are in the process of dying. I I mean, as I'm getting older, I realize that uh, it's true, isn't it? I mean, I've got aches and pains where I didn't think you could have aches and pains sometimes. 
go out and lift a few weights, and I, I'm aching, walk a few miles, I'm aching, throw a disc of all things, and I, I need to buy stock in Advil, actually. An elderly couple were lying in bed one morning, having just awakened from a good night's sleep. The husband took his wife's hand, and she said, don't touch me. And he said, why not? She said, because I'm dead. The husband said, what are you talking about? We're both lying here in bed together. We're talking to one another. No, I'm definitely dead, the old lady said. He insisted, you're not dead. What in the world makes you think you're dead? I woke up this morning, nothing hurts. i got to be dead. <laughs> Can you relate to that? Anybody relate to that out there? There you go. Yeah. Some of you young people, you'll get there one day, I'm telling you. Heaven is the land of the living. Earth is the land of the dying. As Solomon observes life and surveys life around him, he sees death lurking around every corner. There's an unavoidable reality that faces all men. We are going to die. We're going to die. The scriptures tell us over and over that that's our fate. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taking, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. From dust to dust. The scriptures tell us in Psalm 89:48 that that's your question. Who can live and not see death? Who can escape the power of the grave? And the expected answer from these rhetorical questions is no one. Scriptures go on in Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all people because all have sinned. You're going to die. You're going to die. I mean, that's the cold, harsh reality of this life. You're going to die. Scriptures go on. Just as people are destined to die, once after that they face the judgment. The cold, harsh reality of life is that we live in the land of the dying, not the land of the living. Death has a voracious, insatiable appetite. Much like a vicious animal, it silently stalks its prey and then strikes with great fury and often with little warning. It tears asunder hopes and dreams and declares that life itself is vanity, futility, meaningless, or emptiness. Death has a voracious, insatiable appetite. Every person that's walked on our planet except two people, Elijah and Elijah and the Lord Jesus Christ, actually, have met this fate. It's a voracious Appetite. Hey, you ever try to run from something you cannot escape? I, I mean, the reality of it is we all do that at some point in time. In Africa, every morning a gazelle awakens and knows it must outrun the fastest lion or become his dinner. Likewise, the slowest lion must recognize it must catch the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. If you're a lion or a gazelle, the reality of it when the sun comes up, you better start running. I mean, that's the reality. And the one thing that we cannot escape, that we can never outrun, is death. We may try to outrun it. We may have terror or fear of it. But we may say that we're going to avoid the inevitable, but you're not going to escape it. There's an old Mideastern fable about a man who was walking the streets of Damascus, and he came face to face with death. And death looked at him with an expression of surprise on its hard countenance, and they passed one another on the pathway in Damascus, and the fellow was so frightened he found a wise man and asked him what he should do. And the wise man said, Death came looking for you in Damascus. I'm sure he will find you in the morning. So the poor man, terrified, said, What should I do? He, he, he said, You should escape to the town of Aleppo. You should get there by morning so to avoid death. 
And so the man got in his horse. No one had made the ride to Aleppo from Damascus in a single evening, but he did. When he got to the marketplace, he was congratulating himself on having a looting, deluded death. Just then death came up to him, tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around and said, excuse me, but I've come for you today. Why, exclaimed the terrified man, I thought I met you in Damascus yesterday. Exactly, said death. You saw the look of surprise on my face. I was told to meet you in Aleppo today. That's why I was so surprised in Damascus on yesterday. You can't escape it. It's inevitable. You're going to meet it. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Many of you in the medical field, you, you know what it's like. You've got patients. You're, you're a nurse, you're a doc, you're a, a PA or a nurse practitioner, whatever you might be, and you recognize you're surrounded by death all the time. People don't make an appointment with you to tell you, hey, doc, let me tell you how good I'm doing. It's just the opposite. And so the reality of it, we're all faced with the same thing. You know, as I was typing these words out, it was on Friday. I had manuscript on Friday. I spent Friday morning at Scott and White getting a CAT scan, six months. Every six months, the rest of my life, I go get a CAT scan. So here I am typing about death, and really what I've just experienced is getting stuck in a tube, getting scanned, and still waiting for the results today. I figure if they were bad, they'd have contacted me by now. Somebody would have. But here's the reality. The reality of it is we're all going to experience that same thing. The reality of it is you're not going to escape death. And that's what is bothering Solomon. If you look at verse 2, he says it's the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous, for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean. There are five different uh, comparisons here. And he says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how rich, how poor, how young, how old, how beautiful or how ugly. It doesn't matter. If you're a good man or if you're a sinner, if you swear or you're afraid to swear, there's an evil under the sun. There's one fate for all men. Look at verse 3. The hearts of men are full of evil. Insanity is in their hearts. Therefore, their lives are this way. We all die. We all die. It's the great equalizer, isn't it? So the question is, are you prepared for it? I mean, you can't move forward or I can't move forward without asking that question. It's the great equalizer we prepared for. One of the things that I have done is I've, I've gathered in my stash of illustrations uh, dozens of last words, people whose last words are recorded. They're unbelievers. This is a guy named Lord Byron. He was the head of an atheist club. His response on his deathbed, his final words, shall I plead for mercy? After a long pause, he said, come, come, no weakness. Let's be a man to the very end. Those are his final words recorded in all of history. This is J.H. Huxley, the great professor and writer, an agnostic, never believed in a God that could be known. His final words, lying on his deathbed, he saw something invisible to the eyes of those around him, and he whispered his last words, so it's true, so it's true, so it's true. And he breathed his last. Here's the last words of... This gentleman, quite a hairdo he has there, Sir Francis Newport is his name. He was the head of an English infidel club. Those gathered around his dying bed, he looked at them and his final words were these. You need not tell me that there is no God. I know there is one. I am in his angry presence. You need not tell me there's no hell. I feel my soul slipping into its fire. Wretches, cease your idle talk around my bed. I have no hope. I am lost forever. And then the final words of Voltaire, the great philosopher, 
Voltaire was a famous French writer, an unbeliever, atheist. He lived in the 18th century, still studied today. He said of Jesus, curse the wretch. Those were his statements of a statement about his statement about the Savior. He vowed in 20 years Christianity will be no more. My single hand, the pen from my single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 disciples to raise. But his dying days they were so filled with anguish that the nurse who tended to him every day said, For all the wealth in Europe, I will never sit by the bed of another infidel. She watched him die in hopelessness. His physician, a man named Trochum, reported Voltaire's last words were these, I'm abandoned by God and man. I will give half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. Then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Oh Christ, oh Christ. They slip into eternity apart from a living God. You know, Voltaire is the guy who said he would destroy Christianity with this pen that within uh, 20 years it would not exist. Here's an interesting note. Voltaire's house, which had been a factory for his anti-God pamphlets and propaganda, was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society and became a depot for Bibles. <laughs> wow. You prepared? Then on the other hand are people like John Wesley, who said, the best of all, God is with me. Farewell, farewell. His final words. William Carey's last words, the great missionary, when I am gone, speak less of Dr. Carey and more of Dr. Carey's Savior. Charles Wesley, I am satisfied, satisfied, satisfied with Jesus. And his eyes close as he breathed his last. Are you ready? Well, not only is there an unavoidable reality that we all face, there's an unsettling similarity to every man's fate. I mean, it's unsettling. Look at verse 3. Solomon is unsettled. There's an evil in all that's done. One fate awaits all men. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and sanities in their hearts. Throughout their lives, afterwards, they go to the dead. Solomon is troubled that all mankind have the same fate, death. I mean, why isn't there another way out for the faithful? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, Elijah and Elijah got taken away. I, why, why didn't God just beam up the faithful? And, and we can avoid the process of death and death itself. I mean, why doesn't God just take us to glory? I, I mean, God could have taken us from this planet in any number of ways, but he desires for us to experience that. And I think one reason is because we would do, as a Savior did, experience death and know and understand the importance of life itself. But, but there are many other reasons. God, God, why don't you take your fowls in a different way? Solomon's saying lots of people are mean, lots of people are crazy. I, I mean, look at what he's saying here. He, he's saying, he's talking about depravity, depravity of man. There's an evil in all that's done under the sun. Remember, Solomon's in this under the sun mentality. And he says, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. You read the paper, I get up and read the headlines and, and go to a couple of websites and read every Sunday morning Christian children being beheaded because of their faith by ISIS. Heads cut off. I mean, this sounds like something out of medieval ages happening right here on our planet right now. I mean, it's just a tragedy. Men are filled with evil. Pick up the headlines and look at the number. The streets of Chicago are more dangerous than the streets of almost any city in the world right now. I mean, just read the headlines and read how many people are shot every weekend. You know, Bev and I are leading a trip to Israel next year, and we've had folks say, are you concerned about 
you know, when you go there, are you concerned about uh, Jerusalem and the things that are happening? I said, hey, when I go to my home city, New Orleans, I'm much more afraid than I am when I go to Israel. I'm going to tell you that. I mean, there are places I would never go at nighttime in New Orleans. I would never go to those places. It's the world we live in. There are mean, evil people in the world. You know any mean people? Sitting next to you? Yeah, no. A hooded robber burst into a Texas bank and forced the tellers to load a sack of cash on the way out the door. A brave cowboy grabbed the robber's hood, pulled it off, revealed the thief's face. The robber shot the cowboy without a moment's hesitation. He looked around the bank, noticed one of the tellers looking straight at him. He shot and killed the teller instantly. Everyone else was now scared to death, looking down intently at the floor, and the robber yelled, Anybody else see my face? A few moments of silence. Everyone was afraid to speak. Then one older lady tentatively raised her hand without looking up. She said, my husband got a pretty good look at you. (laughs) Mean people, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Country and Western lyrics say it the best. I bought a car from a guy who stole my girl, but it don't run, so we're even. I mean... Think about that. I'm so miserable without you, it's almost like you're here. And then my favorite one is this. My wife ran away with my best friend, and I sure do miss him. I mean mean people. There are mean husbands, mean wives, mean people in the world in which we live. And Christ has called us to live a different life. The fruit of the Spirit are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, in self-control. If you're a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, you look different from the world. You're not mean. You're filled with kindness and gentleness. I was tested yesterday. I was tested. Taught on patience on uh, Thursday morning to a men's Bible study out of James. And then today I know we're going to talk about being kind and I went to H-E-B and I needed to get luncheon meat so I could get back home. I had gone out and done some stuff. And there was one lady back there and there were six of us waiting for luncheon meat. And the lady was very nice, but she was very slow. And uh, people began to drift away, but I couldn't drift away because I couldn't go home without luncheon meat. <laughs> I started looking at my watch 25 minutes later. I I turned to the lady next to me and said, I guarantee you this is a prank. There are people that know what I taught on, what I'm going to teach on. Somebody put us up to this, and she had no idea what I was talking about. I just walked away. So if you're that lady now, you know why. Solomon goes on and said, there's an unnerving finality in this fate called death. I mean, it's unnerving. There's this unnerving finality. Look at verses 4 through 6. Whoever is joined with the living, there is hope. Whoever is joined with you still have hope in your life. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Snoopy is lying on his doghouse. Charlie Brown is watching. He types theology and the dog. Charlie Brown reads it and he says, as it says in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. He looks at Snoopy and he asks out loud, what does that mean? Snoopy mutters to himself, I don't know what it means, but I certainly agree with it. <laughs> what does it mean? It's, a, it's actually a proverb. 
and is talking about the fact that it's better to be alive than to be dead. Solomon sinks into his under-the-sun funk. He forgets about the joy of eternity. He's right. If all we have in life is to value what's done here, what's done now, then we are are hopeless. We're hopeless. He he says, look at verse 5. The living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything. Nor are they any longer a reward. Their memory's forgotten. You forget about who they are. You walk into life stage, as Shakespeare said, and then you're gone. You're done. If you remember way back in the first message on Ecclesiastes, it, it talked about this. And I, I mentioned to you a statistic that I had run across that 70% of us do not even know the name of our maternal great-grandmother. Seven out of ten of us. Don't even know the name of a maternal great-grandmother. So to put that in perspective, these grandkids that Bev and I love so much, Hudson, Jackson, Grace, and Emerson, and Case, their grandkids won't even know Bev's name. Really? Are you kidding me? That's the reality. So you walk across life stage, and you're gone. You leave your estate for your kids to squabble over, and it's gone. And Solomon says that same fate awaits us all. And we've used an illustration over and over in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is like traveling through a dark tunnel, dark tunnel, dark tunnel, dark tunnel, and then there's a ray of light. So, so we're in the midst of this dark tunnel, this under-the-sun mentality, and, and Solomon says, here's the unnerving finality of death. When it's over, it's over. Everything goes back in the box, and it's done. It's done. It's over. You ever have that hit you? I mean, you're sitting in your recliner one day and maybe you have a heart attack and God takes you to glory and you're gone. Recliner's empty and about 10 years from now you're a picture on the wall. That's it. That's it. Me and Gary, that's fatalistic. Just reality. Just reality. And so Solomon says there's an unavoidable reality, there's an unsettling similarity, there's an unnerving finality. Well, Solomon, give us some hope. <laughs> when it all goes back in the box, Solomon, give us a little hope here. Solomon, give us a little light. And so Solomon does that. There's a shaft of light, and he gives us three solutions to that finality of life on the, in light of the inevitability of death. Three solutions on how to live life in light of the inevitability of death. Number one, look down at verse 6 and 7. In verse 7, Solomon says, Enjoy life. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments and much oil signify festivity and joy. He says, the reality of it is you're going to die, So in the midst of the process of dying, enjoy life. Enjoy the life that God has given you. Some of you don't need to be reminded of that. You enjoy life. Some of you, I mean, your face looks like the frontest piece for the book of Lamentations. I mean, I dare you to make me laugh. 
I mean, the reality is some of you don't enjoy life. David Jeremiah, of all people, I mean, David Jeremiah is as conservative as you get. A lot of you guys listen to him on the radio. He, he's written a commentary. It's his sermons on Ecclesiastes. And his, his title above this section is, Let Every Day Be a Party. David Jeremiah. Wow. I mean, he, he's saying what Solomon's saying here. And he's not saying go out and get wasted, go out and get high, go out and be immoral. But he's saying enjoy the life that God has given you. Some of you need to do that. You are serious about everything. I mean, really, there's no joy in your, there's no happiness in your life. You haven't been caught laughing ever. I mean, really. It's like, come on, guys, lighten up, chill, get a life, your. I mean, really, there are guys that walk in my house sometimes and want to say, no wonder nobody wants to be around you. I don't want to be around you. Gosh. Paige Williams asked a little lad about his dad, said, what does your dad do for a living? And he said, uh, he watches. She said, I was thinking maybe he's a night watchman. No, that's not what he does. What do you mean he watches? Well, he watches. He watches television. He watches mom do watches mom do housework. We ask him to come play outside, but he watches us through the window. He watches the weather on TV. He watches girls too. He said with a snicker and impish grin on his face. He watches football games. He watches all the sports. He watches mama spank us when we need spanking. He watches her do housework. My dad, he watches. Wow. Tragic. Just tragic. Solomon says, enjoy life. As believers, as believers, we have many freedoms. One of the freedoms, Paul says, is to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The dangerous duty of delight. John Piper, pick it up and read it. Man, if you are a grump and hard to live with and joyless, See, there are a lot of believers, they are stuck in the quagmire of religious moralism. They're going to do right, they're going to have good morals, but they're going to be joyless in the midst of it. There's nothing contagious about that. Nobody wants to follow a joyless believer. But when the joy of the Lord is on your heart, and when you love what the Lord is doing in your life, and when you enjoy the life God has given you, honor Jesus by being joyful. Joy comes from the Lord who lives within us, not from what's happening around us. Go for a walk. Rent a good movie. Don't just take your kids swimming. Go swimming with your kids. Go Take, take your wife out, your husband. Play games with them. I mean, look at the game board up here. I mean, your kids play games. They want you to come as a mom or a dad, and you never have time. Really? Really, what's so important? What's so important? One author writes, Tucked away in the cedar chest of my memory is the image of a robust and rather rotound children's Bible class teacher in our small West Texas town. She wore black glasses that peeked over the corners like a masquerade mask. Silver streaked through her black hair like a vein on the wall of a mine. She smelled like my mom's makeup, and she smiled like a kid on Christmas when she saw us coming to her Sunday school class. 
Low-heeled shoes contained her thick ankles, but nothing contained her great enthusiasm and passion. When we showed up at her class, she hugged everyone when they entered and everyone when they left. She knew all of us by name and made Sunday school class so much fun, we'd rather miss the ice cream truck than Sunday school because she was so passionate about our Savior. The joy of the Lord. Go have fun. Go have fun. We celebrated Tim Cartwright's 40th birthday. Tim's our junior high pastor. I thought, we need to have some fun here. So <laughs> all you do is a shaved head. All you got to do is turn around and somebody draw that on back of you. And look at that, man. You're like, you can have fun. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that on the road, actually, and make a little money on that deal. Enjoy life. Secondly, Solomon says, enjoy your wife. Go out and enjoy your wife. Look at what he says here. Ladies, you've got permission for me right now to elbow, okay? Man, hit your husband in the ribs. Take notes in his Bible. Go ahead, lady. You've got my permission. Wake him up right now. Point to this verse. Look at what it says. Look at verse 9. Circle it in his Bible. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life. God has given your wife. You're a blessed man. You're a blessed man. And he says, you enjoy the wife that God has given you. You enjoy her right now. You thank God for her. You honor her. You love her. You care for her. Some of you need to be reminded of that. I mean, really, there are a lot of joyless marriages. You make it 30, 40, 50 years, but you don't really love her or you don't really enjoy it. Your marriage is passionless. Your bedroom is cold as Antarctica. You just put up with her and she just puts up with you. God wants so much more for you than that. If you need some help, we have some counselors at TBC. We'd love to help you. We can get you in for, to, to fix that stuff. Enjoy your wife. Grandpappy and Grandma were discussing their 50th wedding anniversary, and he said, shall I kill a chicken tonight to celebrate? She said, nah, why blame a bird for something that happened 50 years ago? <laughs> you know any marriages like that? Yours like that? Don't raise your hand. I, I, I love this story. I used it before. After 35 years of marriage, a husband and wife came in for counseling. She asked what the, pro, the counselor said, what's the problem? The wife went on a tirade about their marriage being passionless, and she listed every problem they had for years. On and on she went, the lack of intimacy, lack of the emptiness, the loneliness, feeling unloved, unlovable, this entire laundry list of unmet needs that she had. Finally, after allowing her sufficient time to go on and on, the therapist got up, walked around the desk, asked the wife to stand up, then he embraced her, he kissed her passionately as the husband watched. The woman shut up quietly, sat down in a daze. The husband turned, uh, the therapist turned to the husband and he said, this is what your wife needs three times a week. Can you do that? He thought for a moment and he said, well, I can drop her off here on Mondays and Wednesdays. <laughs> Some of you dudes shouldn't be laughing because you would think the same thing. He says, enjoy the wife, enjoy the husband that God has given you. Enjoy him. 
You know, one, being in the same place for 33 years, we celebrate 33 years this coming week at TBC. To God be the glory. Yeah. Amen. And you know, there's, there is great joy. I mean, I am doing, I, I'm doing weddings for kids who's second generation weddings. Many pastors don't have that privilege. I married the moms and dads. I'm marrying the kids now. It's a privilege, high privilege. But you know the thing that breaks my heart? Sitting across from, from you and hearing you saying, you know, never loved or never did. Or are you lying to me, Gary? There's nobody else when you and I both know you're lying. Just lying like a dog. Or Gary, we're together, but it breaks my heart to hear about your passionless marriage. It does, it just breaks my heart. That's not what God wants for you. God wants for you to enjoy, enjoy your life and enjoy your spouse. Finally, Solomon says this. He says, be prepared for the uncertainties of life. He says, I looked again, verse 11, and under the sun, and this, the race is not run by the swift, the battle is not to the warriors, nor is the bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to the men of ability, for time and chance overtake everything. Moreover, men, men do not know their time. You don't know when you're going to die. You're like a fish caught in a net. Like a bird trapped in a snare, the sons of men are ensnared in evil time, and suddenly death comes upon them. Solomon says, you need to be prepared for the uncertainties of life and for death at all times, period. Period. That's it. That's it. In light of your pending death, how are you living your life? My death death is not impending. I mean, you don't know that. I, I don't know that. I, mean, I, I could get a call on Monday and say, you know, Gary, the CAT scan reveals some growth in your liver. I've got an 80% chance of that happening within the next four years. And I know what that means. The average life expectancy from somebody with liver metastasis from ocular melanoma is nine months. It's quick. So in light of your pending death, how are you living? How are you living? I mean, really, how are you living your life right now? Enjoying your life before God and to His glory? I mean, that's really what this is about. This isn't just about going out and having a fun time. Or enjoying the husband and wife God has given you? Or are you just putting up with them? Are you prepared for the uncertainties of life? Because they're going to come. I guarantee you they're going to come. And when they come, if you're prepared by knowing Christ and walking with Christ, then you can deal with them. Be a godly teacher and coach, a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife, a salesperson, whatever it is. Because when it all goes back in the box, you're going to look back. And the question is, how'd you really live? How'd you really live? Let me put it another way. When death comes, how do you want to be remembered? I mean, if I'm here and you're gone and I'm sitting with your family, with your husband, with your wife, your kids, what will they really remember about you? When it all goes back in the box, 
And somebody, if it's not me, somebody else says, tell me about your mom, tell me about your dad, tell me about your husband, tell me about your wife. See, some of us want to be remembered this way, but to get here, we've got to make some changes. What are those changes? Remember the story of Alfred Nobel? I'll conclude with that. Alfred Nobel, he woke up one morning and picked up the local newspaper to find his obituary written in it. The obituary stated, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, died yesterday. He devised a way for more people to be killed than ever before, and he died a very wealthy man because of it. You see, the newspaper had bungled the report because it was actually his brother who died and not him. And so he read his own obituary, even though he was very much alive. It had such a profound effect on Alfred Nobel that he decided he wanted to be remembered for something more than amassing a fortune and killing more people, being responsible for the death of more people than anyone on earth. So he initiated what we know as the Nobel Prizes, the award for scientists, writers, those who foster peace. And Alfred Nobel wrote these words, Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream of life and write a new one. That's what I'm asking you today. You're in the midstream of life, or maybe the end, or maybe the beginning. If this is the way you want to end, what do you have to change to get there? Father, I thank you for the privilege of looking at the Word and studying the Word and being convicted by the Word. God, it sounds harsh, but we're all going to die. And for people in this room, for some of us, it's going to be this year. Father, I pray that these folks are prepared. I I pray that every single person here knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you don't, I invite you right now to make sure of that. You see, to get out of this under-the-sun mentality, to have hope in the midst of life and in the monotony of life, it only comes through Jesus. So I invite you right now to consider the Savior who gave his life on your behalf so you don't have to live under the sun, so that you can be in his presence, in the presence of the Father for all of eternity. It's appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment, you can experience eternity in his presence if you proclaim him as Savior for the forgiveness of your sin. For others of us, we need to change our lives so our epitaph will be different. For some of you, you need to enjoy life. You need to get a life. Some of you need to mend a broken marriage. Well, I'm not sure the way you've touched any of these brothers and sisters, but I pray your word will not return void. In the name of Jesus, amen. You're dismissed.